everyone. This is Christopher Brick, and I'm delighted to welcome you back once more to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. For this episode, we're also welcoming our eighth featured lecturer of season two, Varsha Venkata Subramanian. Varsha is a PhD candidate in history at the University of California, Berkeley. She studies the American and international environmental movement against the damming of rivers because of their consequences to the environment and to displaced peoples in the United States and South Asia. Entitled, Damned If You Damn, this research is the subject of Varsha's doctoral dissertation, and we're very pleased to be able to share a snippet of that with you all, the Intervals audience. Here is Varsha. Hello, my name is Varsha Venkata Subramanian, and I am a doctoral candidate at UC Berkeley in the History Department. My lecture is entitled Damned If You Dam, Opposition to Dam Building in India and the Impact on Modernization Theory in the Late 1980s. Koi nahi hatega, band nahi banega, dubenge par hatenge nahi. No one will move, the dam will not be built. We will drown, but we will still not move. This was the rallying cry for the Narmada Bachao Andalan, a movement which protested large dams to be constructed across the Narmada River in India. The focus of this lecture. As India's fifth largest river, the Narmada flows over 1,300 kilometers through three states, Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, and Maharashtra. The Sardar Sarovar project has been surrounded in controversy since its inception. At the moment of independence, India adopted a top-down, state-led, growth-focused development vision, and dam projects played a central role in this plan. Big dam construction supported irrigation, produced hydroelectricity, and engendered flood control. Politicians used these projects to build powerful constituencies domestically and internationally. In 1985, the World Bank provided a loan of $450 million for the SSP, but was forced to withdraw this loan in 1993. Despite the controversy, large transnational protests, and environmental concerns, construction continued slowly, except for a few interruptions. And in September 2017, Prime Minister Narendra Modi finally inaugurated the Sardar Sarovar Dam. In the 1980s, the World Bank, the United States, the Indian government, and anti-dam protesters all battled over the fate of the Narmada Valley. Questions surrounding the environment, resettlement policy, foreign aid and development, and ideology can all be examined through the story of this valley. I look specifically at how the World Bank was affected by multiple crises of legitimacy and how the battle resulted in a truce, not an outright victory for one side or the other. While the Reagan administration encouraged the World Bank to end its policy of international welfareism, environmental groups and activists pushed for the World Bank to stop funding environmentally detrimental projects. The origins for India's massive post-socialist shift also lies in its relationship with development and development aid. The Narmada protests reveal a fundamental transformation in World Bank policy, Indian development, as well as Indo-U.S. relations after the end of the Cold War. The bank needed to balance the United States' changing position on foreign aid, since it's held the largest stake in the bank compared to other countries, as well as attempt to hold themselves accountable against mounting criticism from environmental activists. The end of the Cold War brought with it a crisis of identity for large status institutions like the World Bank. 
which cut its teeth on major development projects in the name of modernization. To adapt to the changing economic and policy outlooks of the 1980s, institutions like the World Bank adopted environmentalist and market fundamentalist ideas to secure the legitimacy, saving modernization theory from the ruins of Cold War liberalism. It is evident and unsurprising that economic ideology had a major impact on international relations and trends in global economic policy. What is surprising, however, is how modernization theory, supposedly drawing its final breaths at the end of the 1980s and beginning of the 1990s, reinvigorated itself by cementing neoliberal ideology and environmental concerns together, thus ensuring that the language of a sustainable development provided a new way for the World Bank and the United States to further foreign development objectives despite pushback domestically and internationally. Examining the Reagan administration and the World Bank's involvement in the Narmada project also illustrates the importance of understanding the relationships between domestic politics and foreign policy. It is important to define modernization theory, to understand the transformations taking place during this period. During the 1950s and 1960s, modernization theory was the dominant method to understand political, economic, and social change in the developing world. Modernization theory adopted a linear perspective on how societies progressed, placing post-colonial countries at an earlier stage of development and positing that they went through the same stages of progress, political and economic progress, as Western countries. During the 1980s, however, there was an agreement in Washington that modernization theory had become stale. I argue that while neoliberal ideology and environmentalism and the end of the Cold War posed a challenge to modernization theory, World Bank officials were able to save the ideology and ensure its survival by supporting development projects and policies that encouraged private enterprise as well as addressed critics' concerns about environmental degradation, at least in theory. Though on its face it seems that environmentalism would not be compatible with neoliberal ideology, I argue that as non-governmental organizations joined in on the fight against Sadar Sarwar project in Western countries, they began to use a language of inefficiency and argue that the SSP was problematic not just because of its moral failures, but primarily because it challenged the boundaries of cost-effectiveness set by these same international institutions and national governments. The anti-dam movement fundamentally changed how the World Bank understood its relationship to NGOs, as well as its transparency regarding projects under preparation. However, this story ends with how the transnational environmental movement was influenced by the Reagan administration's neoliberalism, making it easier for modernization theory and the World Bank to adapt to new challenges in the 21st century. The growth and internationalization of Reagan's economic ideology, especially its application by the World Bank and the Indian government, is essential to understanding why the trajectory of development has taken the path it has in India and the larger global south. As the World Bank grew more invested in Indian dam projects, the environmental movement against these projects grew as well, in the United States and in India. After more than a century of unprecedented industrial development in Western Europe, Northern America, and the Global South, the rise of environmental groups in the 1970s indicated the limits of a purportedly brownless growth and furthermore pointed to the damage and destruction already done to what was then reconstituted by Western conservationists and policymakers as quote-unquote nature. After the World Bank lent its $450 million to India for the SSP, the people of the Narmada Valley and communities across India became frustrated by the decades of broken promises by both the World Bank and the Indian government. 
Both institutions had failed to prepare critical environmental plans and a resettlement program for the 90,000 poor rural population that the dam's 12-mile-long reservoir would eventually displace. Many of those people threatened were at the lowest rungs of the Hindu caste system. So the lack of political power that they had in the Indian government contributed to their decision to use direct action instead of relying on the Indian legal system. Narmada Bachao Andalan, emerging in 1985, was styled as a people's movement against dam construction. They drew support from international human rights groups, economists, environmentalists, among others, and used non-violent Gandhian protest techniques to further their cause. Almost immediately after the World Bank had agreed to fund the SSP, before the ink was even dry, an organization that had prided itself on its service to humanity and technical expertise, the Indian American media started portraying the bank as a harbinger of harm and a teller of lies. People argued that the World Bank had to respond to these outsiders' ideas and critiques of how it should consider its own business. Meda Patkar, a social worker and the NBA's most visible member and the de facto leader, observed a similar situation when she visited the valley in 1985. Villagers told her that nobody asked us if we wanted to move, so how can they decide to build the dam without asking our permission? They should be held accountable. What activists found out, eventually, is that the World Bank agreed to the loans even though the project was only cleared from India's Department of Environment and Forest two years later in 1987. Activists found further problems in the resettlement plan and environmental protection plan from the Indian government. They organized mass rallies and spurred activism across India, inspiring support from international organizations as well. The Indian government insisted the dam projects were critical to Indian economic growth. The NBA, on the other hand, argued that the decision to move forward with the dam based on an impersonal cost-benefit or efficiency analysis belittled the suffering and dehumanized the displaced. Protesters in India utilized arguments against development that criticized not only how this development was damaging to communities, but also who was proposing it. Western countries that thought their method of progress was best. After three years of village-level organizing, seeking information on the extent of displacement and the plans for rehabilitation, the people decided to oppose the displacement and question the project's claim to quote-unquote public purpose. The number of the project was not just damaging to the communities affected, but it represented a challenge to how countries could conduct their own business and their own infrastructure. Arunati Roy argued that the protests eventually represented far more than a fight for one river. There has been a complete change in the debate. Instead of a focus on the fate of one river valley, it began to raise doubts about an entire political system. Roy also pointed to how the United States, the World Bank, and the Indian government viewed the protests as pushing it back against their most efficient model of progress. Indian and American newspapers covered the protests and the controversy around the project extensively, and they highlighted the conflicts between the Indian government, the protesters, and the World Bank. Eventually, activists gained international supports from groups like Greenpeace and Sierra Club. In the Washington Post, various international groups and the NBA published an opinion piece claiming that the World Bank is at it again. Quote, financing with your tax money a monstrous dam project in India that will submerge tens of thousands of acres of forests and farms, destroy fishery, increase disease, and force more than 100,000 people off their land. The people are resisting. The World Bank, though it was created with an quote-unquote altruistic intentions, over the second half of the 20th century, it had engaged in the development projects that led to environmental and social catastrophes, at least according to the media.
Though the Indian government stood strong with the Narmada project, by 1986, Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi had to acknowledge that we can safely say no benefit has come to the people yet. We have poured money out. The people have nothing back. No irrigation, no increase in production, no help in their daily life. The Reagan administration took a markedly different view on World Bank's aid practices than previous administrations and embarked on an attempt to streamline and refocus foreign aid and development projects, specifically focusing on how to promote private enterprise. Robert McNamara, the World Bank president, retired in 81 and was replaced by Reagan with Alden Clausen. Clausen was committed to free markets, the private flows of capital, and international cooperation. His appointment marked an end to the World Bank's, quote, targeted, poverty-oriented approach under McNamara. The Reagan administration was hostile to the World Bank and its mandate. As the New York Times article details, the administration and the bank fought over everything from staffing to basic questions about the role of the free market in third world development. Media outlets, media outlets described Clausen's approach as technical and reliant on managing committees, senior councils, and task forces in order to streamline bank policies. The Wall Street Journal described how Clausen openly cajoled poorer nations into taking more steps to put their economies in order. Thus, the bank, under Clausen, pushed for projects that would convince the White House that it was not just engaging in, quote, international welfareism. The Reagan administration was not attempting to end foreign aid or lending completely, especially not foreign development projects. It just wanted to ensure that America's return on investment was secure. To achieve that return, third world economies needed to be encouraged to liberalize, especially India, and usher in American businesses to these new markets. By 1984, Clausen's tenure at the World Bank had changed how the United States represented itself in terms of foreign aid and lending. The New York Times detailed how Washington's tough policy and development arose from budgetary and ideological considerations. The Reagan administration insisted that it was holding down spending, and the World Bank needed to stop helping state monopolies at the expense of private enterprise. This new approach obviously drew criticism from developing countries. In fact, an Indian official claimed that the Reagan administration does not have a monopoly on economic wisdom, but it acted like it did. Unlike other institutions, the World Bank does not require unanimous support to approve a loan. Thus, many of the loans that the, world, that the United States rejected still gained approval. However, critics of the administration noted that the bank's staff treaded a lot more cautiously under the Reagan administration and is a lot more chary of projects supporting the public sector because of the United States' new position on foreign development and economic policy. The Indian government, though frustrated by Reagan's position on foreign aid and development, changed tack. Instead of relying on ideological arguments that swayed the more status and development-oriented officials in previous administrations, India began to insist that it had much to offer the United States in return, specifically support for American private enterprise. Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, during a state dinner at the White House in 1982, took note of this market difference and planned to make the best of it. She argued that developing economies like India's had a lot to contribute to the international economic order, specifically the, quote, potentially large markets which would help developed countries like the United States to maintain higher profitability on their investment and higher rates of growth. Later in the 1980s, the Reagan administration was positively giddy at the prospect of Rajiv Gandhi's interest in modernization and access to U.S. technology. The United States built on 
India's willingness to open its markets. The World Bank had issues of their own, however, in dealing with the protests and even domestic pressure from the American Congress. In 1986, the House Appropriations Committee on Foreign Operations heard the testimony from various people on international development and lending. This hearing called Bruce Rich of the Environmental Defense Fund, Larry Williams of the Sierra Club, and David Wirth of the National Resources Defense Council. The three of them testified specifically on how environmental organizations could contribute to and shape environmental initiatives within multilateral development banks like the World Bank. Rich specifically criticized the World Bank for its dangerous lack of accountability, especially in the case of the Narmada River Development Program. There was also doubt in the international NGO community and the U.S. Congress on whether the Indian government was a ready and competent partner when it came to the Sardar Sarvar project. Rich argued that the degree of bureaucratic and institutional coordination needed from the government in India to ensure a moderate degree of economic success of this project will be greater than any project ever undertaken by an MDB and by India. This testimony brought to light that even though the World Bank had approved this project, it had concerns. In 1985, a report the World Bank found that as one of the largest developments ever conceived of and designed, as an integrated set of investments, the SSP will pose major challenges to the government of India and participating states in ensuring its execution and operation to very high technical standards. The EDF and other environmental organizations at this hearing insisted the major problem that plagued MDBs like the World Bank was their credibility gap between state policies and intentions concerning the environment and the real commitment of resources and institutional priorities to address these issues. As protests continued in India and the United States, this credibility gap only grew, as did the environmental consciousness in both countries. The bank's response was initially to deny all problems. However, as pressure mounted, the World Bank announced that it's planned to protect the environments of developing countries. In 1989, the U.S.-based NGOs in the campaign persuaded a congressional subcommittee to hold more hearings, specifically on Narmada. The hearings were a watershed moment in India's in international criticism of the bank. The purpose of these hearings was to, quote, scrutinize major projects financed in part or in whole by the World Bank, and the committee claimed that the SSP seemed to have serious flaws in the fashion in which they addressed predictable environmental consequences of these large mega-projects. Despite Conable, the New World Bank's president's claims to centering environmental concerns, this hearing revealed that the economic model used by the bank to assess development projects consistently undervalued the cost associated with environmental degradation and human displacement. The EDF and the NBA both argued in front of Congress that the case of the SSP revealed how large-scale, top-down development projects, which are planned in secrecy and imposed on rural and indigenous communities, are a prescription for disaster. Both these groups revealed that multiple times between 1985 and 89, various bank officials had advocated for the suspension of the project uh, until conditions improved in the field. Thereafter, the international campaign against the Narmada project flourished. In response to these hearings, congressmen sent letters to the bank insisting on a suspension or cancellation of the whole project, or otherwise it would face zero contribution to the International Development Association. Smithu Kotari, an activist in India, made clear that the, quote, World Bank is one of the most unaccountable institutions on the planet. It doesn't consult local people. Unless local communities really come into their own and are given control, you're not going to be able to save land and recover our ecosystem. 
However, the World Bank did find a way to be accountable, at least in theory, by subsuming the environmentalist critique within their newly developed neoliberal development plans. The World Bank eventually agreed to an independent review of the project in the summer of 1991, led by Bradford Morse, who was the head of the United Nations Development Program. The Morse report concluded first that the bank had been out of compliance with its own directives on resettlement and environmental analysis. Second, that there is good reason to believe that the project will not perform as planned. Third, that adequate resettlement was unlikely to incur under prevailing circumstances. Finally, it recommended that the bank step back from the project. Essentially, it confirmed most of what the NBA campaign had been saying to the public. Initially, the bank stood its ground. In fact, the bank argued that withdrawing after this report meant that they would not be able to help if the Indian government failed to address the resettlement or environmental issues on their own. Indian government officials insisted that the governments intended to complete the project on their own, and they viewed the criticism by environmentalists as an affront to their sovereignty and an example of Westerners telling a developing nation how to run its affairs yet again. For the Indian government, the World Bank's hesitation and the international campaign against the SSP was again the Western insistence that India was not ready to join the annals of history. Just as the British colonial administrators had insisted India was not ready to be independent, the Indian government believed the World Bank was hiding behind resettlement and environmental concerns as another attempt to push back a developing country and keep it under the thumb of the West. Eventually, the bank did withdraw the loan from the SSP, claiming that the national and state governments in India could not meet the resettlement standards to which the U.S. Congress and BA had drawn its attention. The Indian government just focused on building the dam itself. This move also suggested the World Bank had become more open to the criticism of activists and growing power of NGOs. However, the bank also gained a boost of legitimacy of its environmental and social establishment, now rebranding itself as a bulwark against the possibility of another Narmada. Within the World Bank, the actual critics of the Narmada project were not promoted to support this purported rebranding. In fact, those who were directly responsible for the Narmada project were promoted. The loan cancellation was an unprecedented move and caused a major public relations scandal for the World Bank and the Indian government. The NBA claimed victory, but they eventually became the unwitting pawns in the global development endeavor, which would march on despite this setback. During the late 1990s, the World Bank decided to move forward with its rebranding. James Wolfenson, the incoming World Bank president in 95, insisted on canceling a large dam project in Nepal because of reports which revealed the severe social and environmental consequences of the project. This sent the message to employees and to the public that the World Bank would no longer support projects that did not have rigorous scientific backing. The bank continued to support their new policy by co-sponsoring the World Commission on Dams in 1997. The WCD brought together both dam proponents and dam critics in an unusually frank process of discussion and knowledge evaluation. The commission largely concluded the dam performance was generally inconsistent with what had been promised, and there was a general failure to account sufficiently for the dam's environmental impacts, and that there was a profound lack of voice for affected communities. Activists across the world, especially in India, applauded the conclusions of the WCD, but these recommendations were just that. They were only guidelines, not rules that were set in stone. The World Bank's fear of public backlash did not last long. 
An unintended consequence of the number of the protests was the World Bank learned how to frame their analyses, how to deal with the public relations backlash, and how to understand their reports and projects through the lens of environmental and sustainable development discourse. The bank spent the years after the 1993 loan cancellation reestablishing its legitimacy, and in many cases, it enlisted environmental NGOs to assist in impact studies and project assessment. These NGOs inadvertently provided cover for the World Bank, and in doing so, the World Bank has remained a crucial player in discussions and decisions about conservation and ecologically sustainable development, even though just a few years previous, these same NGOs were testifying in front of Congress that the World Bank was unable to enforce policies that were environmentally sound. The hope for a steep decline in dam construction and other mega projects were ultimately misplaced. Neither the World Bank nor evidence suggests any of the other international financial institutions withdrawing from infrastructural investments in general, despite the fact that the dam projects funded since the mid-1990s have been smaller in scale to the Narmada project. Even with the concerns about the rising costs of construction, the opposition on grounds of environmental and human damage, and the meager rates of return on investments, many private institutions and international institutions, like the bank, have still declared their support for large dam projects. What the World Bank fundamentally learned then from these anti-dam movements of the 1980s and 90s was that it could no longer operate and greenlight projects in virtual secrecy. But it did not suddenly believe it needed to deny loans on the basis of environmental or resettlement concerns. The World Bank internalized what it learned from the Reagan administration as well. Market-oriented policies may not reduce poverty, but they would provide the key return on investment. The policies the World Bank advocated for in the 1990s were inimical to the cause of poverty alleviation in emerging markets in one main respect, their advocacy of capital account liberalization. The fall of the USSR led many to assume that there was no alternative to capitalism. Liberalization was the only solution, and specifically, Reagan's neoliberalism was the only solution. The collapse of India's traditional ally in the USSR forced it to adapt to this new unipolar world. While the protests achieved some short-term successes, how their timing converged with the end of the Cold War actually ensured that they unwittingly contributed to the World Bank's notion of ecologically conscious neoliberal ideas. They rationalized that a period of adjustment following these projects could lead to some social and environmental dislocation, but growth would generate the means to address the problems. The bank just needed to be more careful in choosing which projects to fund. The World Bank was similar then to the monster Hydra from Greek mythology. It has many heads, and if you cut off one head, another two will grow in its place. Modernization theory, just like this, never dies. The environmental protests against dam construction, as well as the protests on resettlement policy, were effective at cutting down the idealistic vision of unfettered growth, one of the heads of the Hydra as a result of development. But what grew in its place was a way for the World Bank to provide accountability, at least the image of accountability, to international institutions and activists and avoid abandoning its dedication to developing the world. Consequences be damned. And that's all for this installment of the Intervals podcast. Next time, Varsha joins Carrie Ann and I here in the studio for some very fun and lively conversation about her work on the history of dam construction, modernization theory, U.S. foreign policy, and more. We'll catch you then.